Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital or you are looking to get your company acquired or just need some sound financial planning and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at PantheraAdvisors.com or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at Alejandro at PantheraAdvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So today we have an entrepreneur that has done it not once but multiple times. You know what they call the full cycle of the entrepreneurial journey. So I think that uh, again you're going to be very much inspired. The ups, the downs, you know, the successful exits, uh, the capital raising. I mean, you name it. Without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Chris Gladwin. Welcome to the show. Hey, great, great to be here. Looking forward to the conversation. So originally born and raised there in Ohio. So how was life growing up in Ohio? Pretty Midwestern, you know, pretty, um, I guess, uh, stereotypical, you know, just went to school, mowed some lawns, you know, got good grades. That's pretty much what I did. And obviously you didn't get to out of Ohio much until you went to university. So I guess how was your your upbringing there in, in Ohio? I mean, anyone in the family that was into building companies or business or how did you get that book? No, not not really. Um, I don't know. It was just always something that I wanted to do. And I remember one of the companies we'll talk about later, Music Now, we had a musician as a guest speaker, a guy named Corky Siegel. We asked him, like, how do you write songs? And, and he said, you, you just have to learn to let them out. You know, if you're really a songwriter, they're inside of you. And I think that's true, at least for me. And I think a lot of people that are entrepreneurs, you just have to let it out. It's, it's what you do. It's who you are. And you just got to express it. Absolutely. So obviously getting out of Ohio, that happened with MIT. So uh, how did you land in MIT? I mean, how, how was that for you? Like getting out of, the, out of the state of Ohio for the first time. How was that? You know, I had been out a little bit, but never more than like a weekend or, you know, week vacation. And it was culture shock, you know, going to Boston and like a subway and homeless people and tall buildings and all that kind of stuff was 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 new to me, but MIT is just a phenomenal place. And for me, it was transformative. It really gave me the experience to kind of operate on a global scale in terms of kind of innovating. That, that's MIT is just wonderful in that respect. And especially engineering. So, I mean, probably you were, you had that problem solving in you. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it, I mean, MIT still kicks your butt. Believe me, you know, you, everyone that goes like you're the smartest kid in high school and then you go there and you're just like average. And uh, that's a good experience, really, because it, it, it really challenges you and makes you work harder and also makes you humble. You know, you realize, you know, you're not that great. You know, you, you got to work just as hard as everybody else. So obviously the first the first gig, you know, really out of out of school was Martin Marietta. Uh, and then after that, you did 
Senis Data Systems, which was essentially the segue to to building your first baby, you know, your first rodeo. So so tell us how was that segue into cruise technology and 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 you know like that incubation process and bringing it to life and so forth. I was really fortunate in a lot of ways because that was what enabled me to start my first kind of big venture back startup, Cruise Technologies. Back then, it was pretty uncommon. I think it's even still pretty uncommon for someone really young and and kind of early in their career to lead a company with, you know, a lot of employees and a lot of capital that goes into building hardware. Um, But fortunately, I had helped build that division at Zenith Data Systems while I was there. Uh, that we spun out into this new company. So I had the advantage of I knew every customer, I knew all the engineers, I just I just knew the business. And so even though I I was relatively young and I didn't have a lot of experience, um, I really was, I knew that business better than anybody. And so that's why I got the opportunity, which was phenomenal. And how did you guys capitalize this business? In the mid-90s, there was uh, a battle um, for kind of the dominant end-user computing architecture Uh, And the PC had really kind of risen to prominence, but there was a real battle um, that Sun and Netscape and uh, Oracle waged to establish an alternative architecture, which was really uh, a network computer, a a thin client. And um, so we were in that battle, Cruise Technologies, and we were the company that made all all the mobile or wireless thin clients in the market, except one. So all of Motorola's products, all of IBM's products, Wise's products, Telus's products, et cetera. Like behind the scenes, we made all those. So that was pretty cool to be in that battle. The problem is Microsoft and Intel ultimately won. And, um, you know, uh, it was just like by ourselves, you know, little cruise technologies ultimately couldn't compete with those giants. Yeah. And obviously in this case, you guys ended up selling the business, you know, to um to Motorola uh, and NTC, and, uh, and, and that was kind of like the, the end of this rodeo. But then you started another one, Music Now. So, uh, you know, obviously, as they say, once an entrepreneur, always an entrepreneur. So tell us about Music Now. And before Music Now, one lesson that you learned with Cruise Technologies. Well, I mean, I, I think that one for sure, the lesson was I thought that the way to really be successful as a new technology company was to to do something that was just really, really hard and to build a team of people that knew how to do that uh, better than anybody else in the world. The problem with that is, in, is you can overshoot the market. So, so basically, we were building iPads 20 years before the market was ready for an iPad. And obviously, the market now, you look at it and yeah, mobile computing and thin clients, essentially, you know, m- most of how apps operate today is more and more a thin client. So we were right about a lot of stuff, but if you come to market decades early, it's not going to work. So that that was the big lesson was you you got to time the market. That's the most important thing so that you enter the market right as there's some kind of new demand for what you bring. So Music Now was the next one and you alluded to it earlier. So, so how did uh, Music Now come about? Well, the way I started Music Now um, was really a calculation. You know, at that time, m- music was a plastics distribution business, which is music would be printed on a uh, CD that, that, that dominated. But I thought that, you know, you could see this every year, bandwidth was getting faster and hard drives were getting bigger and CPUs were getting faster. And so I, I thought as soon as, you know, kind of the basic CPU that comes in any computer could decode 
uh, or, or encode, compress or decompress music in real time. Uh, in other words, as fast as you can listen to it. Uh, and then as soon as the bandwidth that goes to most houses, you know, for broadband is fast enough so you can hear in real time something that streams in. And then as soon as the average size of the hard drive, which was always increasing, uh, you could hold an average size music collection on about a third of a hard drive. I thought as soon as those three things happen, this thing's going digital. And, 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 I, and, that, and that was right. And that's, uh, that's why we started Music Now. And obviously here, another, another exit. So you sold that to Circuit City. So what was the lesson learned from Music Now? Well, you know, we were a little bit early there too. But what really made that business unable to go is we couldn't get the rights needed to do that effectively. I mean, I, I don't need to do a focus group with you to know that we all knew that, that what the, the market really wanted was to buy a song for a dollar. Like that was obvious, but we just couldn't get that right. At that time, all we could do was sell a whole album for $15. Like, again, you don't need to do a focus group to know that's not going to sell as well as a dollar a song. We just couldn't get the right to do it. And uh, Apple did. And that's a whole nother story. We don't have time for it today. Um, Apple was like almost out of cash, almost out of business when they launched the iPod and the iTunes and, you know, $2 trillion later, here they are. But I think the lesson there was you just got to be in the right place at the right time. And, and we weren't. Got it. So at least, you know, this was the segue to your biggest exit to date with CleverSafe. So I'm sure that, you know, at this point you had two, two startups, you know, under your belt, two companies that you had built from the beginning all the way to the exit to doing the transaction. But, you know, I'm sure that in Clever Save you were able to apply many, many of the lessons learned from, from music now as well as, say, cruise technologies. And I'm sure that many of those were around people and how you would surround yourself. So when you were thinking about Clever Save and, and really bringing, you know, the idea to life, how did you think about as well, you know, the, the, the band, you know, that, that founding team and, and, and those initial employees? I mean, it's de you're right. It's definitely true that as I've, you know, gone through these experiences, including prior ones where I was just working at companies as opposed to starting companies, I was learning and learning and building my network. You know, when I started CleverSafe, I had a much bigger network. I had, you know, much more ability to, you know, people I knew or people I knew who knew people to build the team. And just my playbook was so much deeper, you know, all the different ways to finance a company, all the different ways to organize you know, the team, all, you know, all those things. I had, I had a pretty big playbook at that point. And that, uh, you know, I definitely got each time I, I get better at it um, uh, because, because that playbook gets bigger and also because that network gets bigger. I'm able to identify and attract a, a much stronger team. So then what was, what was the process of, of, of clever safe? I mean, how did you, I mean, you were, you were alluding to it before, like when you're a musician, you know, a musician, then, you know, the songs and the inspiration just comes to you. You know, I guess, I guess here, you know, you had to let it out. So, so I, I guess for you now, you know, having started so many companies, you know, now looking back at the Clever Safe moment, you know, how did the idea come to you and why did you think that it was a good idea to, to execute on? Well, Clever Safe, um, the idea really came from Music Now. So I had, at Music Now, we built a system to store all music in the world, uh, which back, in you know 1999 was one of the biggest data storage systems ever built. Um, plus, I had done some work at uh, at Martin Marietta and Zenith on storage, so I knew data storage technology pretty well. And what I experienced at Music Now was, you know, we bought 
you know, we evaluated and really understood all the, the technology that was available for these big storage systems. And we bought one and used one. We actually bought three. Um, and I, I honestly thought that the kind of state of the industry was terrible. Um, you know, for example, the, the systems you would buy were, wouldn't be very reliable. And so the standard practice was, well, just buy three of them. And that way, you know, if, if one or two fail, you're still good. And I, and I thought to myself, well, I understand why that's good for the vendor, you know, but as the customer, I'm going to pay triple. This is terrible. And I knew, I also had done a lot of work um, in wireless, um, you know, through all my prior experiences. So I knew the ways that uh, wireless signals are encoded and decoded uh, to deal with the fact that, you know, when you're sending out information into some kind of wireless network, what you receive is not necessarily that great. So how do you encode and decode that information, encode it as you send it, decode it as you receive it to deal with all this error and loss? So I knew those techniques really well. And I, I looked at what they were doing in storage. I'm like, man, this is like what everyone was doing 30 years ago. I mean, the state of the art has moved so far beyond this and wireless. I thought we could bring those technologies to storage. And we did. That, that was you know one of uh, Clever says fundamental innovations that has changed the whole data storage industry is we we didn't store data. Everyone before us, if, if if you know data would come in, it's just a string of bits. You'd write it to media. You might throw a parity bit or two on there, and then you read it. And um, that's not how wireless works. And so that's not how we did it. So we would instead we would encode data, which is we'd run it through some mathematical algorithms, and what we'd physically store were codes. And then when you'd read the data, we'd re, you know, we'd um, reconstitute the data in real time. And that allowed us to build systems that were uh, about the size of a single copy, but had the reliability as though you made, you know, six, seven, eight copies. So, you know, that was a fundamental problem I experienced as a customer. I'm like, man, I, there's, this, this can be solved. And so that's, uh, that's why we started CleverSafe. So with CleverSafe, for example, I mean, this was your, your third rodeo now. Uh, and I'm sure that at one point you were able to compare with your other ventures and maybe you realize, wow, I think that I've hit the nerve onto something big and I think that this company is going to be massive. What was, that, what was that point like? We just knew. I mean, once we got the product working and, you know, we got, all, got it built and, and um, you know, it performing fast and reliable, I mean, we would just smoke competitors. I mean, we would go in there and we were, we were like 10 X better on price performance. I mean, literally 10 X better because not only did, were, was everyone else making a lot of copies and we didn't. And physically the amount of copies you make is what drives your cost. You know, if you've got four or five times the bits, you got four times the art, four or five times the hardware, the electricity, the floor space, the management, and it, it's four or five times more expensive. And then on top of that, when we, because the, the technology that was previously used was so fragile, they would use the most expensive hardware. And because our technology was so resistant, we were like the first to take, all right, let's take the lowest cost, you know, desktop consumer grade as opposed to enterprise grade hard drive. Let's use that because we can tolerate so much failure. So we, you know, for the same amount of capacity, we, we, we had about half the cost. And we only needed about you know a third the capacity, so we we were just we, we were just smoking our competitors. We knew we had it. So for the company, I mean, obviously the the exit, incredible exit to IBM. But prior to the exit, how much capital did you guys raise? We put about a hundred million dollars of uh, equity financing in the company, and I believe an additional thirty five million of de of debt financing. 
Nice. So, and how how big was the company right at the time of of Exit? I mean, how many employees or anything else that you can share? Uh, I think when when IBM bought it, we had two hundred and fifty employees. Got it. And uh, what was what was that process like? Because obviously, I mean, you had some some uh, good experience already on doing acquisitions, uh, but not obviously at this at this scale. Um, so 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 what, what what was it different? I mean, you you're saying now whole different deal, uh, but probably same process. So why why was it different? Well, I mean, IBM for one thing is an incredibly thorough company when it comes to this kind of stuff. Um, just the documents, you know, my prior acquisitions were, you know, much smaller, you know, it would be just the complexity of the deal was, you know, captured in a, maybe a 50 page document, you know, with IBM, it was like 5,000 pages of documents and this, the complexity was, was pretty severe. So that was a, a big change in the, you know, the, the money was so much greater. Um, that that had an effect because it was life changing. Um, the other ones were a nice little bonus to have at the end of a company. But you know, IBM IBM's purchase of CleverSafe was life changing for a lot of people. Um, I think it's been widely reported that over eighty people got uh, at CleverSafe got a million dollars. Not as widely reported. I think I calculated the other day, it was over thirty people got at least five million dollars, and and that changes a person's life. You know that kind of money. Um, it, it, it's yeah. great. I mean, I remember friends of mine paying off their mortgages, you know, like just all kinds of great stuff that came out of it. Um, so that was that was uh, a wonderful difference. Because what was the size of the transaction? It was over one point three billion. Yeah. Wow. That's a lot of zeros. So how did it feel the, the day? I mean, how, how long did it take from the beginning of the initial discussions to the actual signing? And then also, what was that day where you put the pen to paper to to close this thing? It really began in earnest around March of 2015. And I knew then, even though there was a lot, you could tell there was a lot to do. You could see both sides were really, you know, had the right motivations. And, you know, both sides were doing their job and negotiating hard. But you could tell this deal was going to get done. Um, and then we signed a term sheet. It was still a big secret, but we signed a term sheet in 2015, like, I would say June-ish, July-ish. And then the deal was announced like October that year. Now, the funny thing is the actual pen to paper. So the deal was announced at market open Monday morning. So eight o'clock in the morning here in Chicago uh, on Monday that week. And we didn't sign the deal till about 11 p.m. Sunday night, the night before the actual wow. physical approval. We had a board meeting at like 10 p.m. that night. It was... uh Cut, cutting it close. And and for you, I mean, you were talking that it was life changing. I mean, it's 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 also interesting. I mean, obviously on the on the transactional side and seeing all those zeros, you know, it's a it's also nice. But you know, I guess that to a certain degree, it's kind of like experiencing like a death because it's like a, no, it's like it, I I mean, if you associate it from a psychological perspective, when you sign those papers, too, it's like an emotional roller coaster as well. I mean, how how was that for you? Yeah, it was, I mean, for me, kind of delivering that result to my investor, investors, my employees and everybody, um, that, that was very satisfying. It's kind of my job, yeah. you know, to ultimately do something like that. And so, you know, there's a, it's like, you know, this is my craft, you know, as I was talking, we were talking about like kind of letting it out. Like if, yeah. if, it, if it's your craft, this is how, you know, this is who you are. This is how you self-actualize. And so a measure of the quality of that craft is, 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 is delivering that kind of outcome. 
So it, it was very satisfying to have done what I do well. Yeah. And I guess for you, you know, life-changing, you know, event, you know, you could have like taken a boat and, you know, and, and enjoy life. And uh, you didn't do that. Why? Why did you keep going? Well, it goes back to the same thing is I, I actually enjoy the process of uh, building these companies. And, and it's like, I have to do it. It's who I am. Okay. So it wasn't about, oh, I, you know, I don't really like this, but if, once I get enough money, you know, I'll stop. I mean, yeah, I, I, I've never been in this for the money. Um, and so, I've, like I said, I've been in it because this is my crap. This is who I am. And so um, I had already been working on OCN, my next company. You know when IBM bought. Um, uh, oh, so you were already thinking about it? Yeah, there was a some friends of mine had had started working on a project, and you know one thing led to another, and that turned into OCM later on. Okay, so so tell us about what was that thing that led to another, and uh, really landing on OCM. Yeah, so it was very similar to uh, Cleverse. One one of the things I feel like I've learned to do well is to listen at least with enterprise businesses, the, the way it works is you're not so smart that you sit around and think of this great idea that everybody wants. That's not how it works. Like, I, I feel like being good at it means I'm really good at listening. Um, and so what, what I'll do is I'll ask, you know, enterprises, like, what do you need? What are your problems? What are, what are, what are unmet needs or problems you can't solve? And when they start to tell you, like, take notes, you know, listen. I mean, so the skill is not like, how smart are you? It's like, how good are you at listening and interpreting what they say and ask like, you know, like in this interview, like asking them questions, like, well, what do you mean when you say it's slow? You know, like really digging in and, and understanding that. So um, through Cleversafe, I had spent 10 years of my life selling to the 200 largest bit storing organizations in the world. And I knew them all really well. Like if you had an exabyte, there's only so many ways you can have an exabyte of data. And we knew them all. And you know, we, we, some of those we got as customers, some of those we chased as customers, but we knew them. And so they started to tell us uh, a need they had, had they could not meet, which was this explosion of data that needed to be analyzed, not just stored. And, um, you know, if you've got a billion smartphones and they just keep getting smarter and smarter. Well, what happens is they make more and more data to analyze. If you've got a bigger, faster, you know, network and you're a telco, well, that network is making more and more data, you know, every day, every year that needs to be analyzed. And examples like that, and we were hearing the biggest of the big, you know, the really massive enterprises had these data sets. They needed to analyze, but they couldn't. It was just, they were just too big. And once I heard that five times, I'm like, well, look, if these people can't find an answer, it doesn't exist because they know how to find these answers if they're out there. And, you know, I mean, that's gold. You know, when you hear that from your from customers, like that is gold. And, you know, that was it. So we just listened. And our customers, you know, told us a problem they needed solved. So why why did you decide that, you know, your co-founders here, perhaps George and, and Joe, were the right ones for this? Well, they had, um, you know, spent their career uh, building databases. And, uh, you, know, one, you know, one database in particular I was very familiar with is they had built a large high-speed da database, which is now used to, you know, to, I think something like 90% of the beverage cans in the world are built 
using their their software that run, that runs those factories. So that was one of many things they had built over the years. So they knew high speed databases. They knew, you know, it's kind of like people that know cars. They know all the different kinds of carburetors and all the different kinds of suspension systems. Well, these these, these guys knew databases, and they knew all. There's all these different techniques and some old ones and some new ones, and they they knew them really pretty well. And so they were the first people I turned to when I was hearing this from customers, like here's an unmet need as I turned to them and said, you know, in some detail, like 10 pages of detail, like here's an unmet need, you know, can you think of a way to solve this? And that's really, you know, how it got started. So at OCN today, how do you guys make money? So we sell software really at the end of the day or our software as a service. So that's what we make. So we have built a brand new architecture to analyze the largest data sets in the world. And and we, we focus not only on massive data sets, but massive data sets where your your business requirement is you need to continuously do complex analysis on massive chunks of that data, you know, second after second or minute after minute. That's it's it's a very specialized thing that we do. And you know, we are the the best in the world at it. And obviously here you've raised money, you know, and, and, and I'm sure that there's a lot of people that are listening now and watching, you know, that are wondering, but Chris, I mean, you made all this money, you know, in previous transactions. Why, why did you have to raise money here? I mean, I, I think I have an idea of what the answer could be, but I'll let you, I'll let you take a stab at it. Well, one thing that's changed. So back, back in the day when we did CleverSafe, if you looked at the um, kind of enterprise storage uh, startups for the from you know, when when IBM bought CleverSafe, going back the prior twenty years, um, there there were five companies that had billion dollar and above exits. That was it. That's all the better. That, that's as big as it got. Um, and all those companies exited between one and three billion dollars, um, and then they all raised between one hundred and three hundred million dollars. And that was kind of the formula back then. Uh, if you look now at the enterprise database market, the numbers are all substantially bigger. So not only are the exits much bigger, um, like eye-popping record-setting numbers. So instead of one to three billion dollar range, you're seeing exits, you know, all the way up toward the hundred billion dollar range. Um, but what that means is it cascades back uh, in that the amount of capital you have to put into these companies is substantially higher. So you know, instead of a hundred to three hundred million dollars. You know, you're seeing, you know, up to $2 billion of capital, $2 billion, which is $2,000 million. I mean, it's a lot of money um, being put into these companies. And really, like, if you really want to go dominate a category in enterprise database these days, you're, you're going to put at least $300 million in, you know, again, maybe, maybe even a billion dollars. And actually, the interesting thing is the more successful you are, the more money you need um, because success costs money growth costs money in these kind of businesses. So to answer your question, like, you know, at, at that range, it's well, way beyond my capability to fund on my own. Of course. Now, the question here is, you know, you've been talking about listening and how important listening has been, especially, you know, in this case for the birth of uh, OSINT. Uh, I guess, you know, listening is not just applied to customers, but then also to employees as well as to investors. And I'm sure that in fundraising, listening came in handy. So how did you apply listening to really onboard these people? Well, the, the one, I've said this many times, like what, when you want to fundraise, you don't want to just go to anyone. You want to go to the investors that are the most, have the most expertise in what you do. 
So actually, I'm I'm working on it today. I'm about to raise another round, and so I've been I've been researching who are all the investors who have made investments at a at kind of the valuation range that we're in, you know, for similar companies, not directly competitive, but um, adjacent, and like I want to go to them because they really know this market. And then from a listening point of view, if they say no, it's not because they're not smart. They're right if they say no. Like, you've got to really listen. Like, what, what are they telling you? Because they're telling you, they're, they'll, they'll articulate, I don't like your model. I think this is inefficient or, you know, whatever, whatever it is, like, you really need to listen to that feedback because it's, it's probably right. And the answer is not, well, if I go to the most informed investors and they all say no, the answer is not, well, let's go find some less informed investors and see if they'll invest. That's not the right answer. The right answer is you need to address the reasons they said no, because if the most informed people aren't aren't investing in your company, the problem is with your company, not with them. Absolutely. I mean, it's all about identifying concerns. And I always tell founders that fundraising is not about talking, it's about listening, because that's what separates you and the money, really removing those concerns. So, Chris, so in this case... How much capital have you guys raised to date for the people that are listening? About 65 million. 65 million. Okay. Uh, and now in terms of the size of the operation, how many employees do you guys have? Anything that you can share? Yeah, we're right around 100 right now. I think Very like cool. any day now we'll cross 100. So I'm sure that you've learned quite a bit of, um, you know, a, a few things when it comes to culture and, and leadership. So how do, you, how do you scale yourself at the same pace as the organization? Well, I mean, this is so cliche, but it's all about your team. So, you know, one thing you, you learn, I mean, if you're, you know, up to a 20, maybe a 40 person company, you know, anyone, including, you know, if you're the CEO, you can kind of have a sense of everything going on. As you go beyond that, forget it. I mean, no one at the company, including yourself, will know everything going on. What you really have to do is man, you know, manage, I mean, in terms of being a founding CEO, it really becomes about managing your, your team. And so you, you really need to get people that, that know how to do the job and do the job. And then my job is really kind of uh, obviously recruiting those people and then just enabling them to do their job. And so I help with like communication, you know, amongst the team. And sometimes I work on like who does what type stuff. But, you know, at the end of the day, you know, whoever's responsible for sales, they need to be selling. Whoever does engineering and you, and if I'm in there like doing their job for them, that's a problem. Um, now I have a role to play, you know, in certain things, you know, help them in certain ways. And I also have to do fundraising for sure. And then kind of, you know, manage the board and investors. Um, but really, you know, that's one thing I've learned as I've kind of moved through this is, you know, how to, how to kind of manage and lead versus do. And, um, you know, I have a role to play, but my role is to kind of enable them to really do their job great as opposed to do it for them. So, Chris, imagine you go to sleep tonight and you wake up, tremendous news. You wake up in a world five years later, in a world where the vision of OSINT is say, fully realized. What, what does that world look like? Well, we have a seven-year plan. <laughs> I can just go to <laughs> year five. Um, you know, generally what you see for companies like us is, um, you know, we, you know, we're, we're in a really important year this year. So last year, like the year before we had no revenue. And then last year, because you know, it took that long to build the product. I mean, it took us literally close to 
well, about 250 person years of engineering to get version one out wow. the door. And that's just the nature of the, you know, the beast for enterprise storage these days. The ante is so high if you want to sit at the table. Yeah. And then last year was kind of the year of the pilot. So we sold some pilot systems. Now, remember, we're, we're selling systems to analyze the largest data sets in the world. So a little pilot in OSINT land is, you know, on a, a massive system. And now yeah. we're getting into initial production systems, which are even bigger. So what, what generally happens is once you kind of get through those first years, um, if you look at every other database company that's been successful, generally, you know, doubling your revenue every year is very good. Occasionally people will do a triple, you know, once you kind of get into scale, but that's pretty, pretty rare. So from a where will we be point of view, you know, we will be, you know, doubling, doubling, doubling. And we'll be at that point, five years from now, we'll be, we'll be beginning to dominate our category of these massive systems. We'll be winning the majority of new uh, new wins, you know, as, as companies decide to implement a new type of system, we should be winning the majority of those. So that that's where we, we should be in five years. So now tell us about your your other passion nowadays. So tell us about the Forge. So what are you doing at the Forge? Yeah, I also help start a um, a company that makes outdoor recreation parks, and uh, we've opened one of them, which is uh, the Forge Lamont, uh, which is where I'm at right now because I have a a place here because I come out to the park for various reasons. This is kind of like my weekend and evening thing, but it's also very similar. My 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 other partners are both. Uh, people from the the kind of technology entrepreneurship world, and it's very interesting to watch us apply all of our technology entrepreneurship thinking to the outdoor recreation industry and um, doing things that have never been done before. So, I'll give you one example. So, I at uh, Music Now, I worked a lot with Best Buy, and, and this is back when Best Buy was just dominating the market. And the most secret thing going on at Best Buy was what they called the map room, which is where they were going to open new stores. And what they were doing at the time, which was revolutionary and now is pretty common in retail, is for each possible store location, they would map every single household, how far away it was, what the demographics were. So they they could know exactly what would happen if they put a store there. And I remember asking them once, how accurate are you? And they're like, plus or minus 7%. Like we know exactly who's going to walk in the door day one. We can tell you their demographics, their income, you know, all this stuff about them. And and they were pretty accurate. So we did that uh, for outdoor recreation activities, which we're pretty sure no one's ever done that before. You know, when we thought about placing an outdoor recreation park, we we kind of we modeled the location in that same way. So we can tell you within 15 minutes, 30 minutes, 45 minutes, how many active climbers or bikers or hikers or whatever there are. And, and then we start to... What we're building is our capture rate model. So we start to know, like, if we were to open a new park in a new place, you know, we could tell you how many climbers are going to come and how many bikers are going to come and how many zipliners are going to come. And because we, we're, we're building this capture model. And that's a, so that's an exact example of an implement of an innovation we brought kind of from more of the technology world into the outdoor recreation market. So, Chris, you're definitely a wealth of knowledge. So, uh, you know, if, if, if I ask you this question that I typically ask the guests that come on the show, and that is, let's say I put you in a time machine, and I'm able to bring you back in time, you know, to that moment where you were thinking about starting Cruise Technologies, and you have the opportunity of having a chat with your younger self. 
and give that younger Chris, even though our younger selves, you know, don't listen. But, you know, let's pretend that oh, I would listen to the old me. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. So so imagine, you know, the, the young Chris is listening to, to the now Chris and you're able to give your younger self one piece of business advice. What would that be and why before launching a company? Well, the, it's the piece of advice I've given a lot of other people. Like, even when I look back now at, you know, Music Now or Cruise, which were right about what they were making, but wrong about the timing, um, you know, that would be the advice, which is you've got to get the timing right. Like, just because you can make it doesn't mean the market wants to buy it. So you've got to line the timing up of when you are coming to market to the point right when the market wants it. And if you're early, you know, if you're early, you have to find a way to last until the market's ready. And because uh, you can't, you can't, you can't push it too much forward. I mean, if you're five years early, it's not going to happen. If you're six months early, you might be able to push it, but you know, five, 10 years, forget it. And is there a way to, to know, you know, maybe there's a lot of people on the, that are right now like listening and watching us and, and they're probably wondering, hey, Chris, but how do you know if the timing is right? How do I know if the idea that I have or maybe the startup that I'm working at, you know, right now, you know, is, is right? Is the timing is right for the market? Well, normally, you know, the, the rule of thumb I, 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 I use, I mean, in the case of music now is very easy because that, that calculation I shared really was right as soon as broadband could deliver there was enough broadband have enough bandwidth that it could stream music as fast as your ear could hear it bam it's on and that that's exactly what happened um in other cases like in enterprise stuff if you if you're going to bring something to market that's 30 or 50 percent better no one's going to buy that um from a new vendor forget it um because it's just so much change and so much risk so in the enterprise market, your initial offering better be at least three times better if it's five times better, like legitimately that much better. Um, so by what by a metric that matters to the customer. So that on the enterprise side, that's that's pretty much what we're talking about. On the consumer side, it's harder to judge, you know, like Google search. How could you tell Google search was better because it was enabling things that didn't really exist before. So that's a little trickier. I mean, there had been search before, but you know, the way that Google made it better, um, maybe that, you know, maybe they could tell you. Um, but as a consumer, I it's hard sometimes hard to tell if it's something really new. That's a tougher one. Um, and I think if you look at the companies that are, I mean, you have to be honest with yourself. It has to be like breakthrough better. And it's sometimes hard to quantify what that means, but it can't be just nice to have. No one's going to buy from a new company or deal with some new software they got installed for nice to have. It's got to be either breakthrough compelling or three to five times better. I love it. So, Chris, for the people that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Oh, just check out OCN.com. Amazing. Well, Chris, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. Thanks. It was a pleasure to be here. Enjoyed it. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. 
You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.